This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And today's episode will be about getting me a new stomach. Preferably one oh, that is not 45 God. years old. Do we have to? Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, my God. I'm just trying to freak you out. I Christopher's know. on a new diet, and he doesn't... Christopher is getting into the world of middle-aged dieting, which is always a series of exciting new developments that you can't tell if they're going to be permanent or not. Yes. But they so freak you out when they first start happening. Yes. That you think, oh, my God, I can't live like this. And I then can't. it's over in a week. I have to be able to leave the house before 1 p.m., I said today. <laughs> yeah, that's never, that's never been a problem before. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and then it's like, you're always annoyed because I'm canceling foods. And I'm like, well, that's it for peanuts, or that's it for spinach, and that's it for, and you're like, you're rolling your eyes. Yeah, like, that's, uh, yeah. yeah, I think this is, I think I've reached the end of name, insert food group. Vanilla ice cream. Not that, chocolate ice cream, mind you. Never happened. Never, never happened. happened. Well, um, doing podcasts as you get older is hard. It just is. It's hard to do, it's hard to sit in one place and run your mouth the older you are. <laughs> Again, Sorry, no real no real empirical data to support None. that, particularly Absolutely. where you're concerned. But mm. yeah. Just my bad attitude. Okay. God knows I'm leading the way on old guy blabbermouth. Well, you know, you are on cloud nine because you are renovating your new place to live. Like that. And so and I'm not judging you. this is the point of doing it, but you have been just you sent me photographs yesterday from your shopping excursion to pick out new stone and tile as if you were at Disneyland and you were in like some, you know, deep San Fernando Valley Stone tile place. Stone Mart. Stone Mart. And you're like, look where I am. I'm at Stone Mart. Yay. This is where life has taken me. <laughs> um, yeah, now I will be more I will be more adjacent to Cloud Nine than when I actually can move into my house, which God knows how long that will be. But right. But I'm getting to a place where things are actually starting to, we're actually starting to do stuff as opposed to, yeah. let's talk about this some more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's taken months. So right. it's a lot of work. And then we'll see. We'll see. But in the meantime, we'll but yeah, we got a lot of work here on the podcast. We're still doing, and somebody really pointed out something that's very funny. Give me that serious look. You brought this up. But this is really serious. 
Um, a TDPS month is not the same thing as a calendar month. So we very often announce that we are doing a month of things, and then people are like, it's the 7th of June. What are you talking about? And I'm like, okay, it's going to be the next four episodes. That's what we consider a TDPS month. So we're doing True Crime uh, Movie Time Summer Film Festival. And um, well, we, it's digital, so people can listen to it whenever they want to. It's five years later. Right. It's like that thing where they put it up at the bottom of the screen. This offer is no longer valid. Don't call this agency <laughs> number anymore. Stop it. Stop it. Stop and it. And you call anyway. anyway. And you're like, can I ask about that offer? <laughs> I want the helicopter. I want a helicopter that, ride. And- that that Pepsi promotion where the no. kid wanted the helicopter. I think they've made a documentary about it. They put it in the commercial. Oh, right. And then they wouldn't give it to him. And he was like, I saved up the points and I want the fucking helicopter. Yeah. And they were like, there was, we were kidding. It was a joke. It was a commercial. We were kidding around. He was like, no, no. It was a promise. I want that helicopter. You got legal representation. I haven't, I don't know if he got one. I haven't watched the documentary. <laughs> I don't actually care if he got one. But it was like, wow, people, you really have to. You're right. Some people take things very literally. So what, very what is going on with the crackhead pillow guy, Mike Lindell, who offered somebody $5 million if they could prove that the election and wasn't stolen? And then they stolen, proved it and he wouldn't And he won't him. pay them and he's taking them to court too. I love no, that story. No, they're taking him to court. They're taking him to court. That's what I yeah. meant. The guy who wants yeah. the money. And yeah. I think the court may have already said, yeah, you have to pay. I'm sorry. That, that was the deal. But yeah. So anyway, back here in TDPS land. Which happens digitally. So whenever you start this, there'll be a period where we're going to be in True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival. It may not even be summer, but we're still having a summer film festival because that's the episode you're listening to. So uh, what these are, these are about our true crime pairings coming more fast and furious than usual. We do a true crime TV club about a certain crime, and then we do a movie, a scripted dramatic movie, here in the studio. Just Eric and I playing all the parts. (laughs) (laughs) You be the police officer. I'll be the FBI agent. You be St. George and I'll be the dragon. (laughs) Wow, that's a deep cut. That's beyond true crime there, Eric Shaw Quinn. I don't know. Uh, Primeval true crime. Mm. Okay, so... But we decided to divide up the country into regions. I also think <laughs> because we have, it's up to us. We have more regions than summer months, which will also be exciting. So it'll be a seven-month summer film festival. So summer's just endless summer at TDPS <laughs> digitally, where seasons don't actually happen or count anyway. Yes, exactly. Um, so this is East Coast Carnage. That's yeah, what we're who beginning. Who's this who's holding your feet to this literal fire about <laughs> just, when months are and when days start and what day of the month it is? And Classic social media strategy. If you get one comment about something, amplify it and make it sound like it was 20 comments because then it will sound like you have more followers than you Some usually do. Some people say. Uh, exactly. Authors say, I've been getting a lot of questions. You got one question and it gave you something you wanted to talk about in this post. So I, you start or that I way. thought of this in the shower this morning on my way over. <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, I, I think everybody's just engaged and they're listening to our podcast and they know what sharp-tongued, opinionated bitches we are, so they feel like they need to be that to get our attention. And, and they're right. They're really, it totally works for us. We're yeah. charmed by it and we don't yeah. mind, but you don't have to be that. You can also be sweet and pleasant or kind. And many of our 
our listeners really are just really they're sweet really people. great and really engaged. They join us on and the some fa- of them are you know whip smart bitches. Who right. just give us a bunch of shit, which we also kind of adore. I uh, love and they join bad us on children. the Facebook page every we, every Wednesday. We do the Wednesday question, and we've been getting some great answers on those. And occasionally we build an episode about it. Sorry, I wanted to get that in before we moved past it because you wanted to say Facebook, 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 Facebook. Facebook We're Facebook. still on Facebook, just like We're your old. grandma, right? <laughs> We are your grandma's podcast. (laughs) If your grandma smokes a lot of weed and did a lot of orgies in the 60s, we are your grandma's podcast. We are your grandma's the 60s. Christopher, you weren't even alive in the 60s, and I was in the first grade. (laughs) Things were crazy at Warren Easton Elementary School, but I don't think they were that crazy. All right, all right, all right. And what were you saying before I, I shoved the Facebook promo? Oh, I'm supposed to remember now? <laughs> is, is that why you always jump on your point? Because you're afraid you're going to forget. Well, we move on. <laughs> we do. We move on. I actually talk about things that are relevant to the conversation we're having, and you do non sequiturs. You <laughs> want me to shut up. And it's like, well, okay, now we're on a new topic, so deal well, with it. Sometimes you go, you start going in a certain direction, and I think, well, he'll, he'll pause at a certain point, and I'll be able to enjoy And then we're, we're, way, then we're at St. George and the Dragon, then we're in Prime Evil England, and I just don't know, you know. Primeval month on TDBS. <laughs> Primeval murder. Ancient true crime wouldn't be a bad idea. I mean, there wouldn't be as many interviews. I think National Geographic did an episode where they found, like, a an old, like a Neanderthal man or an ancient right. Cro-Magnon man or something, and frozen, and they did, he had been killed. He'd been murdered. Right. He didn't die natural death. So they actually did like CSI. Cool. Uh, Cro Magnon. Yeah. It was yeah. really. It was pretty great. I loved That's it. Great. I was right. Yeah. You are. You're always of right. Of course. I was like, oh, I totally know where they. Uh, totally. He. He got it. Conclusion they came to agreed with mine. I was okay. Like, yeah, I'm right. I'm right again. Um. But right now, today, in the here and now, we are beginning a true crime pairing about the Boston Marathon well, bombings. We are beginning. East Coast Carnage. Yes, we're beginning. This is a new month. Whenever yeah. we're, you're starting it, this yeah. is going to be four episodes all devoted to true crime on the East Coast, right? And Yes, that's correct. And so the next four episodes will be about the East Coast, and this is a true crime pairing about the Boston Marathon bombing. So the true crime TV club we're doing on this episode is about an HBO Max documentary. That's where you can get it here in the U.S. at least, called Marathon, the Patriots Day Bombing. We're not talking about the Netflix one, which was longer in three episodes, and I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to take notes on three episodes. This is Marathon, the Patriots Day bombing on HBO Why Max. Why are you pointing at me? There wasn't an argument. No, I'm imagining that you're a Facebook, uh, per- you're one of our party people. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'll point to the empty chair next to you next time. Here I am. I'm pointing to the empty you're chair. You're welcome to watch that one. But yeah. Yeah, this is, this is the one we watched and we'll be talking about today. And... um. I think just as as a way to kind of get into it, it was an interesting – I don't know if we've watched a special that balanced this much about – well, let me put it this way because I was going to say something that was factually untrue. I was going to say it was more – as much about the victims as it was about the perpetrators. It was more. more. But it was about victims who had to live with their injuries. It wasn't just about the grieving – and it was it really brought home in fact it was less about the grieving it really brought home um the pain of this crime in a way that i was not expecting you know i don't know what kind of emotional reaction you had to it but i i found this to be the most difficult to watch out of any documentary we've ever done it it just it it distressed me on a level beyond disturbed or frightened or outraged it was wow you really had to sit with the cost of this 
idiotic, crazy, malevolent crime, which we'll, of course, all get into. But did you have an emotional reaction on that level to this? I, I think my first reaction was I was concerned that it was going to because it was so driven by being from the perspective of the victims mm-hmm. of the of the blast that it was not going to be about the investigation at all. Mm-hmm. And that turned out not to be true. I thought they did a nice job of going back and forth because there's a long period in the development of the investigation where you don't know who it is or right. what's going on. And there's... In reality, it wasn't actually that long. It was just a few days. But as they developed it, that there wasn't a lot to go on to begin with. Right. And so they could really lean into talking about these people experiencing it and then how they had to continue to deal with it for years after. And that was the thing that really struck me was it was 100 hours and they were in custody mm-hmm. at least. Yeah. Um, and... These people are still, to this day, dealing with the aftermath of this childish, ridiculous, pointless, mm-hmm. horrific crime. You know, uh, the other thing that really struck me was the thing that I can't even remember. We talked about it on some other kind of, like, this is still a serial killer. Yes, right. They, like, they did most of their killing on the same day, but this is another serial killer story. This is not, that's, it's easy to... To, to, to leave that out. But this is really about being a serial killer. These were yeah. serial killers who this got was, was caught your, in a week. Your assessment of Timothy McVeigh, yes. I think, is what you're referencing. That, that, that why do we consider it different? Because they have ch- randomly chosen a political ideology to justify their desire to kill people. Yeah. Yeah. Why are we putting it in a special category? And that's just bullshit yeah. in all cases. It's this personal desire to kill that they are using some sort of ennobled mm-hmm. um, justification to... Um, rationalize when in fact they're just you know delighting in killing random other people which is yeah they're just they're just perverse psychopathic serial killers there there isn't a difference between um timothy mcveigh and any other serial killer out there or these guys there's no difference between timothy mcveigh and these guys they were just driven by their own personal animosity and childish um desire if well, and will. it seems that the similarity between the narratives, and we'll get into this when it comes to McVeigh and these guys, is there's a sense of profound failure and dissatisfaction in life, which they then blame on an external source, absolutely. which they feel then, they then need punish. to attack. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I mean by childish. Exactly. Okay, so do you remember where you were when all this happened? Like, do you remember watching it on the news? I will say that this is going to be an interesting <laughs> admission on the air. I usually don't watch coverage of stuff like this on the news because it's just bullshit for about a week. Mm-hmm. Like it's just they're on 24 hours a day. They only talk about this. They have to say something. And so every random thought and idea that comes rolling down the pike winds up on the air. And it's not new information. In fact, it's often the wrong information. they there was that the the guy who got misidentified right. yeah. by the media as being the mm-hmm. and it was published on the New York Post. I can't even remember New cover York Post. Of, yeah, yeah, cover of some paper and it was hideous. The, that there is very little when when mass shootings or those things first happen that is informative mm-hmm. about the news. I am more like it. It's such a horrific moment, and I am more 
caught up in the pain of it right. than I am in the minutia of, particularly because it's usually so inaccurate. Yes, right. That I, I usually don't. I will usually watch a regular amount of news coverage, an hour, say, mm-hmm. of news coverage about an event like this. And then I kind of drop out right. until there is something. The thing that was astonishing to me in the time that this, when this one happened was the rapidity of the development mm-hmm. of the invest, the accurate development of the investigation. Like this just kept leaping forward. I would think that I had seen my hour and then something else would happen. Mm-hmm. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. I think that's a very good point you made about the rapidity of the investigation. It just, it, I've I, never seen anything like it. I remember, uh, to answer my own question, I remember it being one of the first events like these that I followed along on social media because I believe, and we'll get to this, there this results in a shelter-in-place order before we were all familiar with the implications of right. that during the pandemic, which was stunning at the time. And people who were sheltering were Facebook-living some of the events that that brought this sort of nightmare of events to a close for the city of Boston. And it was just stunning to be following it along in that kind of really gritty, viral, you know, way. It was just I'd never I'd never participated in anything like it. I was just a spectator, obviously. But it was um, to me and I think both the documentary we're going to talk about today and the movie next week capture the extent to which all of these tools, regardless of how you feel about them, how invasive they were for some citizens. All of these investigative tools that were rapidly put into place after 9-11 kicked into gear for this investigation. Yes. And and how there was a moment, we now look at it, we have the information about the perpetrators. We It, it doesn't, it's an attack that doesn't seem to have the scale of the 9-11 attacks, but on that first day, we did not know that. No, nobody knew what we was didn't. going to happen next. And to be honest... They really thwarted the scale of this. There was yeah. there was intended more scale that that it's not. I think I became more aware of as a result of this, mm-hmm. um, and pursuing looking this and then um, doing the pairing than I was at the time of how much more scale there was to this than was initially clear. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into the documentary. It's called Marathon, the Patriots Day Bombing. And we basically, at the outset, we meet two different families. I'm sorry, we meet three families. Uh, We meet the Nordens, J.P. Norden and his brother. We meet the Corcorans. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Celeste, Kevin, the daughter, Sydney, and the son, Tyler. Uh, they're, the, the Corcorans are sort of, I, they're kind of a Boston family. Their accents are pretty heavy. They seem kind of working class. They live in a, a modest home. They're, you know, clearly a tight family. Uh, similar vibe with the Norden brothers. They're really sort of just Boston guys. And 
Patrick and Jessica are, are I believe they're, she's a nurse, and it, I've blanked on what his profession was. I think he was also in the medical profession. He was profession. in school. He was in school. He was pursuing his doctorate. Yeah. And you start to realize that all of them are talking to the camera about their plans for attending the marathon. Now, the marathon in Boston happens on Patriot's Day, which is the anniversary of the first battle of the American Revolution, which I didn't write down the exact name of that battle, and I know I'm going to flub it if I try to. It's the Battle of Lexington and Concord, right? I think that's right. I think, <laughs> correct us if I'm wrong. Um, so for the Corcorans, the, the sister of the family, or I think the daughter of the family, if you're not her brother... <laughs> is running the marathon. She's actually in it. So they're talking about how to get close to the finish line. Um, similar vibe with the Nordens. Similar. You start to realize this is why we're talking to all these people, is that they gathered at what would become one of two bomb sites at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Um, the footage of these bombs going off is terrifying. It's always been terrifying the you know. thing that's really astonishing about this investigation and that moment of the crime is, like, this entire investigation was videotaped. Mm -hmm. Like, it was all on video. Right. And so starting with the, well, actually starting way before, as fortunately, the explosions, but the explosions were videotaped. So right. the horror of it is actually right there for you to see. It was, it was brutal. And they did a cinematic technique. Uh, the filmmakers did where they're building up to footage that you've most likely seen before. It's a camera that's low to the ground. It's filming the runners as they come in and they make you wait for the explosion. Like you wait the amount of time you think before the bomb's going to go off and it's, they've cut it longer than that. So I was just on the edge of my seat and then the first explosion goes off to the right of the screen and it's this, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, a, it's not a mushroom cloud. It's a white blast that goes kind of straight up into the air and just consumes everybody standing within its vicinity. It's terrifying. Yeah. Um, we interviewed Jim Allen, who is a Boston EMT, and he describes what he encountered right at the scene. He says people's clothes were on fire, that they were tearing off their clothes because they were literally smoking. Um, Celeste Cochran tells us that her eardrums were both blown out by the blast. Uh, her legs were mangled. Her blood was being pumped out with every heartbeat. And so... Um, the other thing that was really in, probably so, maybe the most moving part of the entire um, show was the number of people who literally poured directly yeah. in to the blast site without a moment's hesitation. No. I mean, within seconds of the explosion, there were people pulling off the all of the stanchions and all of the barricades mm -hmm. and all the things were being pulled and thrown off and so that they could get to and assist the people who had been injured in the blast. I mean, yes. seconds. There was yes. not a moment's hesitation of, oh, no, something bad could happen to me. Everyone went to somebody else's aid. It was it was incredible, it was moving, and it was. In addition to that, it, two bombs had gone off several minute, a minute, about a minute apart. So there was no guarantee that there were right. more bombs, and they did not hesitate. There yeah. was not even a hair's breadth. 
So all of the survivors that those people you just described were rushing to are immediately separated based on their injuries. There's a first aid tent that's set up very nearby, but some people are way too serious and they need to be rushed to the hospital. And what this means is that family members like the Corcorans and uh, Jessica and uh, Patrick were immediately separated. And Jessica and Patrick, who are married couple very much in love are immediately rolled into separate ambulances and end up at separate hospitals for days right right and so immediately and they're rushed into surgery their injuries are very serious and they're not really aware of it for yeah. a while because they are really just out of it for a long time and they even made the point that so much when they came to when they did emerge from the the fog of their um injuries and, and surgeries and whatever be, being stunned by how much had been going on right. that they were completely unaware of. So what's immediately clear is that the bombs were on the ground because all of the injuries people sustained were to the lower parts of their bodies, which is uh, an injury to your femoral artery in your leg is incredibly serious and yeah. life-threatening, and that's what the, they're dealing with in the yeah, first The amount moments. of blood on the sidewalks is brace yourself. Yeah. If you watch this, Wow. Um, Edward F. Davis, the police commissioner, gives a press conference on TV saying they are securing, quote, the most complex crime scene they've ever encountered. And they realize it's two devices, 200 meters apart. And the so that's your that's just part of your crime. It's like scene. a city block. Right. Um, we go to Liz Norton, who is the mother of the brothers we met earlier, JP and Paul. She says she gets a call at home. And again, her sons are in different hospitals, so she has to go back and forth as they're entering surgery at the same time. We get some of the backstory about her. She had them when she was very young. People always thought they were twins because they were so close in age. Um, Paul is put in a medically induced coma for nine days. Patrick and Jessica are in separate hospitals for five weeks. I think they are reunited at some point. I think there's a visit or something. They, but. Yeah, they brought um, her over to his hospital um, once they were both stable enough to be transported. Celeste Cochran, the mother of the Cochran family, loses both of her legs. Um, they show footage, which I actually thought was quite moving, of a double amputee from the Marine Corps who has learned to live without his legs coming in and talking to her about what is possible and don't give up hope and there is a there is a wonderful life waiting for you. This was one of those moments that I didn't know anything about. Uh, a photographer for the Boston Globe asked to see yeah. the Cochrans wow. because he took a photograph of both the mother and the daughter in their worst moment is understating it near death on the sidewalk yeah. and it and it, the photograph was picked up by multiple news sources throughout the country and he feels guilty about it he feels like he invaded their uh their lives really They're beyond privacy certainly there yeah beyond that but certainly their most darkest and most personal moment, my God. Right. And so he asked to see them, and he says, as a kind of amends, he wants to document their recovery. And they're very moved by this, and, of course, they accept his offer. And so he does a piece for the for the paper in Boston about, you know, a photo essay about their journey as um, as amputees. I'm, I'm getting confused here. The, the daughter, I believe the daughter loses her foot? No. No, she doesn't lose. No. She suffers serious injuries to her legs, which necessitate the removal or the transplant of certain arteries. That's yeah. what it was. That, yeah. was she de that was definitely the case. She had very serious injuries, and there were lots of pens and plates and whatever, but she actually kept her legs. She, yeah. She actually managed to. And the miraculously, the father and the son are—the son is 
completely unscathed and the, yeah. the, the, the father is fine. In fact, the father deals more with survivor's guilt than he does with right. actual injuries. He is as torn up by the fact that he couldn't felt he couldn't protect his family yeah. as he might have been by the bomb itself. He was really – it was a lot to cope with, which – I hadn't considered as a as a as a possibility yeah. as yet another injury. Yeah, absolutely. another scar. And you know, I should also say here that the the Cochran women were so accepting of John Tolmaki, the photographer's request, because they actually believed the photos he had taken of them were really important, and they showed the world how yeah. horrible what they had been through was. Yeah, they were they were yeah. all in on yeah. People should know what happened to us. This was not okay. So um, the evidence, okay, one of the bombs was a pressure cooker containing nails and ball bearings, and it was hidden inside a backpack. They say that about one of the bombs. And it's my question, both of them. It was, yeah, it was true of both of them. That yeah. would just be an error in my notes. The investigators received 70 terabytes of relevant digital media, going back to what you were talking right. about. All of this, this was, was on crowdsourced. video. It was yeah. astonishing, and as a result, they were able to go through and back from the explosion, go mm -hmm. backwards from and find the bombs being planted. Uh, but facial recognition software doesn't turn up anything, which was like, wow, I don't know much about how facial recognition software works or uh, how it worked in well, 2013. I think it's really like if, you, if you've opened your iPad or your phone using its ability to recognize your face, you can see how easily it doesn't recognize you. <laughs> yes. Like, it needs to be pretty ideal right. for it to be able to get the metrics that it needs to open even your Facebook. So somebody's grainy cell phone video of you walking through in the background on a crowd, not even in focus, has no chance mm -hmm. of being what they were hoping was that people would people who knew who it was or people who knew them would be able to see them and recognize mm -hmm. um from the the generality of it that it was this person that they knew oh that's right. so and so who's down by so and so and in fact despite the fact that that played no real part in the investigation that actually happened mhm mm so a hundred human analysts over a hundred human analysts are having to sort through all this video footage that came in oh yeah yeah um, I'm going to pause for a question here that I don't know the answer to, and I'm going to put you on the spot. So they interview Deval Patrick, who was the governor of Massachusetts at the time. Why didn't he ever run for president? I thought there was some talk of him being – he's such a formidable presence in this story, and he, he comes out looking so good. And I remember them being there being buzz around him running for president, but – why did he never run? Uh, you know, I honestly don't remember if he did or not. Yeah. I, I, he certainly was, he had, a, there was a moment with him in, you know, on the world stage. And certainly he was very, as I recall, very well respected um, mm -hmm. during his time in office. I don't remember him running. He might have. Maybe he did. Or maybe he did exploratory stuff and people were like, yeah, it's never Forget gonna, it. Yeah. It's not going to ignite for you. You're not going to yeah. get that. You don't. I have no idea. I don't really have an answer to that. And I can't say that he didn't. Yeah, exactly. I can't even say accurately. He may have given it, thrown his hat in the ring and gotten it tossed back to him. You know, right. it happens. Yeah. Like, it's apparently more of a crapshoot than I realized. Yeah, apparently so. <laughs> the last few years, yeah. I've become, it's become aware, oh, wow, this is really just a crapshoot. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. So... 
Uh, he tells us that they eventually find a photograph of a guy with a white backwards baseball cap who has a bag at his feet. And in the video, he enters the frame about five minutes before the bomb goes off and sets the bomb right behind a group of children. Charming. As the first blast goes off somewhere else, this guy in the video walks slowly up the street. The name they give the suspect is White Hat. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Yeah, the thing that really called their attention to him was when everybody else turned to look at the explosion, he turned and walked mm-hmm. the opposite direction. Not in a rush, mm-hmm. because he knew there was nothing else coming the way he was walking. And mm-hmm. that's that was the thing that tipped them off, that it was him. So there's a raging debate in the investigation about whether or not to make the image public. Uh, they also, by tracing White Hat, make their way to Black Hat who is their second suspect, who is taller than him and is standing in another image with him where they clearly seem to know each other even though they're both looking out at the crowd. And this is an image from before the video that shows him dropping the bag. Yeah, they they literally followed him backwards through the video to plant from planting the bomb to where he started, and he started with Black Hat. As you mentioned earlier, and as there is almost no address in this or in the movie we're going to discuss next week, about the fact, which I remember being a big moment, that they misident the New York Post misidentified a suspect, just threw up a photograph of a guy who looked vaguely Middle Eastern from the crowd, which was not black hat or white hat, and, <laughs> you know, could have gotten that person fucking killed. And uh, nobody talks about that in this documentary. Yeah, there were some things they did not address in this documentary because I think they were trying to look at this from the point of view of the people who had triumphed over this mm-hmm. rather than the crime of it. Right. Like the crime of it's in here and they investigate it, but that's not really their focus here. This is about surviving it yeah. and about triumphing over it. And that was okay with me. Um, yeah, I think that was kind of questionable. That was, that was, there was a lot that was questionable. And that's the thing I was talking about earlier. Those early days in any of these big crises, there's a lot of bullshit in yeah, the media. Yeah, there really and is. I just, 
I don't find it usually worth listening to. And, I, you know, I, I've, I've said this before. Dave Cullen, I believe, is his name, who wrote what's regarded as the definitive book about the Columbine shootings, which took him about 10 years to write. It famously said, everything you hear in the first 48 hours is wrong. He may have even said the first two weeks. I, it's just wrong. Yeah. I mean, and it's a waste of your time. Like, yeah. It is about whipping up people into a frenzy or having an emotional reaction to something that is very emotional. And I don't think there's... I'm not saying that doesn't have value. I'm just not big on wallowing in that kind of emotional um, swamp, if you will, of what right. else will upset me? What else? Here's a picture of the guy. You know, or here's the same up. picture over and over and over again. It's the it's the loop feed of the planes hitting the tower. I mean, it's just, yeah. It's you know a, what I'm going to tell? What? I always think of that story with Bobby Carnavale doing that the video of the the suspected mistress of the um, of General. Oh, 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 not Bobby Cannavale, the Saturday Night Live actor. Bobby, Bobby Monahan. Monahan, yes. Bobby Monahan, not Bobby Cannavale, who's also a really good actor, yes. but not on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that the recreating of the of the, the the video of her walking out of the house in that with that bouncy hair and that dress on him, dressed like that during the recreation was so. But it's so they just play. Oh my God! The same video over and over again because it's all they've got, and then they bring in somebody else mm -hmm. from somewhere else to talk about something, and it just gets to be. It's all about speculation, and yeah. I just, I, I find that to be masturbatory. Yes, in a weird way. So, um, in terms of this documentary, because there is a focus on the survivors and their recovery, the timeline gets a little confusing. You know, because the, the timeline of their recovery out overextends the timeline of the investigation, oh, but we go back and forth years between and the years two. years and years. Right. So um, we we check in with, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, I'm forgetting, the Norton brothers. And this is one of those tear-jerking moments that made me tear up. I don't know about you, Eric Shaw Quinn, but Kelly Castine, JP's fiance, says that as he was recovering, he said to her, you should leave me because you don't deserve the challenge of having to deal with this. And she said, let's not ever say that again. So, oh, I made you, right? Yeah. Yeah, there were yeah. a lot of moments in this that uh -huh. really, because that was what I was saying. It's coming at this from the pr perspective of the people who survived it mm -hmm. and triumphed over it, that was so right to the end, like the, that final frame, sobbing. Mm -hmm. You know, totally. like all of it, right along all the way through. And it was hard. They They did not make this seem like, Sunshine, like everything went great. The, um, no, as we get into what amputees go through, they say, I, th I think it's one of the Cochrane women says point blank, you don't just get a prosthetic and then everything is great. You have to learn how to use it. You continue to have chronic pain in that limb. It's 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 like learning how to walk again as a child. You know, yeah, it's just, she says it's like being on stilts, which right. I can totally see. It must just be terrifying Yeah, to try and get up and balance on Basically, yeah, a, a, a stilt of a, of, of a sort that's been – hers got custom made for her and that really worked out. Jessica, one of the victims, yeah. really struggled, is still struggling. Yeah. To, I don't know where she is in her progress because this is not the most, you know, mm -hmm. current thing about her. But there's been an ongoing struggle for her to try yeah. and get back to a place where she can walk again because it just simply didn't happen. And she even talked very candidly about – her husband kept one of his legs and had the other one replaced and was able to move forward with it. And there was some jealousy about yeah, it. Yeah. Like, I couldn't deal with the fact that he was in this place and I was still in this place. Mm -hmm. It was hard. I thought it was really 
searing. I mean, it was yeah. really in depth. Uh, that that was the part of this this particular special that was so fascinating. Absolutely, to me. absolutely. And you juxtapose that with is mundanity a word? And I don't know the mundane, the the whatever. Of, yeah, let's of go the, with mundanity. I, this is these just hideous, stupid morons who perpetrated this crime. As we get into who they were and the, you know, I I was sitting there thinking, well, thank God they weren't smarter. But at the same time, that sort of downplays the evilness of what they did do. But they were just. They were designed to get caught. I mean, nothing they did was strategic or smart. I mean, the idea that they would not have anticipated or even made any preparation for the fact that there are going to be cameras all over the scene, that they're going to be identified in three days. It was this enormous public event. Yeah. They didn't have a coherent plan for leaving town or getting out of town. They stuck around Boston. Boston's not – Boston's kind of like a small town. It's a city, but it's not Manhattan. You know what I mean? Like – Anyway, so we this the documentary gets back into the investigation. So we're five hours after the photo release. And then out of nowhere, it seems, on the campus of MIT, a police officer is gunned down and the suspects try to steal his gun, but okay. they're unsuccessful. But yes. This is they finally did make the decision to oh, release you're right. yeah. the, the photographs, the blurry photographs of the guys mm-hmm. because they felt like somebody would be able to identify right. them. And this is the point where Maybe not as much here, but where it actually in the story, people did actually identify people who ended up in prison, mm-hmm. actually identified them and then didn't come to the authorities. That, and that that is, I think, something that the movie next week goes into way more detail about, which I would was like, oh, my God. Because, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's forgotten convictions. Those ki- yeah. those people were actually the um, the younger of the two brothers who were the bombers was. Um, like the biggest pot dealer on campus because mm-hmm. he was so ideologically driven. <laughs> um, right. He was this huge pot dealer, right. even though he's a member of a religion that I don't think in, endorses any kind of oh, mind-altering yeah. substance at all. Do, right. I, I don't no. know. I don't think they drink. I don't think. I don't think yeah. that's part of that culture. Um, so yeah, so huge pot dealer, and so you know his bros, mm-hmm. um, like. Stowed his uh, his. Uh, they came in and discovered his uh, bomb making stuff in his dorm room, and they hid it, mm. and then stayed in his room and smoked his weed and played his video games until they got busted. Like mm-hmm. it was a confederacy of geniuses. Yeah, totally um, across the board. But yeah, so the opposite of that happened, and it also alerted the the brothers that they were on that they had been identified or were close to being right and they went on the run and in an effort to try and get another gun they attacked a police officer on the MIT campus and murdered him yeah. because you know god and stuff yeah. and Allah and, and things and so this is less than an hour after the killing the subjects then carjack another victim and force him to hand over his ATM card and his pin number and the carjacking victim makes a break for it because they decide they need to pull over and gas up his car because they're going to go to New York City. And get snacks. Yeah, and get snacks. I, Jesus Christ. So carjacking victim runs to another gas station, goes inside there and tells the gas station attendant. Again, this is all on video. We're seeing gas station surveillance they video. They also confessed to the carjacking victim that they were the Boston Marathon bombers and to killing the police officer. Right. Like, because geniuses. I know. Um, so, yeah. So, and the the carjacking victim tells law enforcement the Mercedes that they stole. Because, okay, so the lead, the lead brother makes a call. 
He can either chase the victim who's running away or he can get his brother out of the gas station and get him back in the car, and he chooses the latter. So he gets his brother, all again, this is all on gas station video cameras, gets him in the car, tears off, leaving the carjacking victim behind to talk to the police. He says, there's a GPS tracker in my Mercedes. Use it to catch these motherfuckers. Um, and because it was a brand new car, he knew off the top of his head the tracking number that right. they needed. Like it was just this meant to be kind of right. moment. But we should add that, right? Or is this before the shelter in place order? I think this no, is this before. No, this is before. This yeah. is shelter in place comes after this night. We're not in Boston. We're in a little suburban area outside of Boston. Watertown. Very quiet. Yeah. Nothing's really going on. They go from Cambridge into Watertown in the stolen vehicle. They they're tracked there, but the people in Watertown have no idea who they are. They just think it's a carjacking. Yes. So they go in pursuit of the carjacking people. The cops and the cops, they said, we didn't have that many people on shift that night. It was, you know, it was a slow evening, we thought. So five or six officers descend on the car when a report of it gets to them. And I mean a gun battle to end all gun battles breaks it's out. It's not as well covered in this particular no. in this particular thing. But, yeah, apparently. But that's what I was following on social media because that was when suddenly everybody in Watertown, Massachusetts, like not a day or two after this bombing, said, why are there explosions going off in the middle of a residential neighborhood? Not one, which would have suggested we found a bomb and defused it, but multiple explosions. It was insane in the middle of, you know, this residential street. Yeah, it was yeah. it was quite a, and quite a moment. And uh, many of the officers said I'd never fired my gun before. Mm -hmm. Like I might, they were from this very quiet little community in the suburbs outside of Boston, and it was a very safe place. Nobody was prepared for this, and most of them didn't know who they were even dealing with. They were just coming up on a carjacker, and suddenly they thought they were going to like either run or surrender. Mm -hmm. Like they didn't think any of this was going to happen. They had no expectation. Yes, that they were walking up on this extraordinary response. So, uh, and in a moment, and I know we really shouldn't cheer until the end of this thing, but in a moment that was covered as much in this documentary as it will be in the movie next week, they well, cops managed to tackle the older brother. The younger brother makes an escape. He gets in the car and in the confusion ends up running over his older brother. And dragging him and for dragging some distance him. before being ejected under the back wheels of the Mercedes uh, SUV. That's the kind of poetic justice. And it didn't kill him. It didn't kill, but he dies at the hospital shortly thereafter. Yes. He doesn't have long. But, but it means that there was suffering involved, yeah. which is fine. Yeah. So they used the dead brother's fingerprints to identify both of them by name. At this point, they've just been white hat and black hat. Right. That's when um, a response on the level of the invasion of a foreign country is launched in the streets of Boston because— And that's when, because the younger brother gets away and they don't yeah. know where he is, that's yeah. when the shelter-in-place order Exactly, comes down. because that—and that is— Because they still don't know— what else is in and the And they've been talking, they talked in front of their carjacking victim about having more bombs, setting off more bombs they in different cities. They were headed for New York. They were they, going to Times Square to blow up the, the, the New York City. They set off explosions in the street during the gun battle, which is depicted more, more detail in the movie next week. Yeah. So it's, it's terrifying. and more... Um, pressure cooker bombs like they had used in the... Yeah, it was, it was quite the... Yeah. They searched house to house... 
door to door the entire city of Boston. Does anyone know if they were really able to do the entire city? They didn't do the entire city of yeah. Boston. They searched Watertown. I don't know. Is that true? Yes. I thought well, the whole city was under they a shelter were, there in was place other, order. There was like yeah. there was other there was other stuff going on. Like there was somebody identified as going to the um, the train station that they thought might have been the guy. Right. So they they were there were follow ups of other leads, but they didn't go house to house for the entire. I was thinking that would have been no, that. Okay. No, it was right. Watertown that they were searching door to door because he had left. He got he got away from them. He ran over his brother. I just love saying that and got <laughs> a little ways away and then got out of the car and took off because mm -hmm. the car. When he managed to push through, he literally had to ram the police cars. He he destroyed the car, right. getting away from them, and drove into a phalanx of police officers who just riddled the car with bullets. So right. it probably it didn't go much further. He got out. They found it abandoned, and so he'd left on foot. And they didn't figure he would get too far. And right. So that's why the search was in a limited area. Okay. So. They get a 911 call finally, and this is the evening or the late afternoon after they've done all of these searches, and a guy is saying, listen, there's somebody in my boat. And they're like, your boat? He's like, my boat is parked in my driveway. It's got a cover on it, and there's a blood, there's blood, and somebody is in my damn boat. Um, the cops roll up, and they use thermal imaging, and they detect a human hiding under the cover. It's clearly this guy. And so they eventually well, probably. fire flashbang grenades into the boat cover. I remember this. I remember watching this on television. And up, you know, like a fucking character out of a, an Acme cartoon sits the younger brother, you know, stunned out of his mind, sort of raising his hand in the flag of salute, and they pull him out. And I don't want to get too into how the movie handles it because I think there's there are more specifics in the, the movie we're going to talk about next week. And they got him. I mean, they fucking got him. They drag him to a hospital. Then they immediately move him to a prison medical center because that's, you know, foreshadowing of his future. Um, there's rejoicing throughout the city. We see footage of people pouring out into the streets because on top of all this, you can leave your house now. We, you know, like we've caught the, the, the terrorist. But this was really still a pretty fresh event. Everybody was still reeling from it having happened in the first place. This was four days. Mm-hmm. Four days later, and it's over. Yeah, absolutely. We got him. It's done. Yeah. For now, you know, we don't know what else in the future holds, but this is this shit's over. And I would say the the latter part of the documentary, which is doesn't have so many events in it, is really about the trials. Okay, so the setup of the trial is this: there's there's not going to be any chance of an acquittal. He pleads guilty. Well, they basically say he did it right yeah. off the bat. There's no, there's really no denying it. And so it's really a case about whether or not they're going to kill him. Right. It's a death penalty trial. And as we discover, um, there's enormous anger in the city of Boston over media coverage given to their backgrounds and their past. And I think there's a really interesting interview with the Boston Globe reporter who— Wow, that made me so angry. What part of it made you angry? The the Where he said that people— Attacked him, yes, right, and said, "I hope that terrorists yeah. do to your family." Good, and the guy's That's the part that made me angry. And too. the guy's father died in the towers at nine yeah. eleven. So, like, yeah, I yeah. know what that's like. Like, it's the thing that I always, you never know what time it is in somebody else's life. Mm -hmm. Like that kind of shit. God, yeah, like 
Yeah. It just made me furious. I, I agree with you, and I think I don't uh, go down for this idea that covering something is the same thing as celebrating something. I think that's so childish to think that. I think, and as the reporter says, we're we're profiling a criminal here with the effort, with the intention of finding the next criminal. That if we break apart this man's story and we look at what the trigger points were, if he was radicalized, how he was radicalized— and I think the narrative, which is the same narrative, is that he was always a kind of lunatic who couldn't handle failure. Like, that's what you have to look for is a really aggressive, hostile person who cannot handle disappointment and failure. That that is a criminal profile. It doesn't have anything to do with the Internet or what he looked online. He would have found something, as you always point out. Timothy McVeigh found something that he could justify right. to kill. This was a yeah. serial killer looking right. for a justification for, like, believing in the thing that they tell you is the reason they did it is just a complete waste of time. Right. Like, the kid who killed all the people at the, um, in, at the high school in Miami, like— I'm sorry, his justification was what? He had yep. a disappointing Valentine's Day? Like, right. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Like, how brutal for you. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the other interesting interview with a Boston Globe reporter, I think her name was Patricia Wen. She says, I, I went down to the trial every day to try to find out what made the younger brother tick, and I never got a convincing answer. Like, was he only trying to impress his older brother? Apparently, the younger brother was the acknowledged fuck-up. The older brother was going to get him on the straight and narrow with this hideous, malevolent, disorganized plan to kill people. Like, there was never really any more insight than that, and there's never been any remorse or contrition from the younger brother. And I will actually say, and I'll we'll get more into this next week. Mm-hmm. I've got some insights on that. <laughs> I've got some insights on that yeah. for for next for next time. Um, interestingly, the fam the survivors we have been talking to, none of them were in favor of him getting the death penalty. Oh no, that's the Cochrans were all in. Oh, were they? <laughs> oh, yeah. Celeste wanted him dead. <laughs> Celeste wanted his ass dead. <laughs> I thought she came around. She I did thought not. she I thought she said once I heard the verdict I was glad he was going to be She did gone. not. She okay. did not. She they were glad that he got convicted but she was glad he was going to be killed. Um yeah. yeah, the they did not one of the things they didn't do was the 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 family of none of the families of any of the people who died mm-hmm. in the event were included in this. I don't know that they chose not to mm-hmm. or that that was an intent on the part of the producers. That was not made clear, but they were not in favor because, as they said, they did not want to have to relive the event every time there was an appeal because that's what happens with a death penalty case. Right. It gets appealed and appealed and appealed, and they didn't want to have to go through what they had already lived through. That wasn't going to bring back their their child. It was an eight-year-old child was one of the people Martin Richard. Martin the, Richard was his name. And his family yeah. was like, absolutely not. We do not want this. They sort of led the effort saying, we don't want the death penalty. And so, and yeah. the, the victim, the, let me say the victim's names just because I didn't earlier. Sean Collier was the cop who was murdered at MIT after the bombings. Martin Richard was the little boy you just mentioned. Crystal Campbell, who was described as such a good friend that she was a bridesmaid something like 700 times. 17, okay. Yeah. And Lu Lingzi, who was a Chinese national college student who was at the site of the marathon watching the runners come in. Sorry, just wanted yeah. to get that. No, yeah. absolutely. These these innocent people who just happened to be watching a perfectly innocent, lovely city event. Yeah. When these 
belligerent jerks decided they were going to punish strangers because they didn't get what they want. He didn't get a boxing career. That's what it sounded like. The older brother wasn't a success at a, at boxing. No, it was he like, actually was. The really? older brother threw away a boxing career because he didn't like the way he was treated around the yeah. Olympics, which, you know, you could make a case for, and he mm -hmm. might have stood up for, but not like this. Right. So enough about them. Yeah. Three years after the bombing... Patrick runs the marathon I with his prosthetic leg. Sobbed. Foot, yeah. excuse me, prosthetic foot. Jessica is waiting for him in a wheelchair, even though she had difficult feelings because she is not able to really walk without extreme pain and is facing a decision about whether or not she should amputate her leg, if that will make it easy. But she is waiting for him, and she rises up out of that wheelchair and throws her arms around him, and it is a tear-jerking moment. I mean, yeah, took me down. So that's the documentary. May I ask you a question? Yeah. Did you watch another documentary? About I did. This? You cheated. You I, did like me. No. There were questions that I had, and we'll, we'll talk about them next week. Yeah. I'll get into them next week, and there were things that I wanted further answers to, and I saw there was another documentary. There's a newer, more recent one mm -hmm. on Netflix that I went in for background. That sounds great. I'm just teasing. I want to hear what you have to say about it. So next week, the movie for, for this pairing is Patriot's Day, which is a Peter Berg film starring Mark Wahlberg. It is about these events. It was made not too long after, a couple years after. Peter Berg later, uh, I'm a big Peter Berg fan, and he said he called this part of his American trilogy, the first being a movie he made called Lone Survivor, which was about the ambush of a SEAL team in Afghanistan the second being Patriot's Day, and the third being the movie he made about Deepwater Horizon. Right. All of these three kind of disastrous events that defined this era, the early 2000s, whatever we're calling they those. Were, they were all Mark Wahlberg, right? Mark Wahlberg, I don't know if he's in Lone Survivor. Maybe he is, yeah. Maybe he is. I thought, but yeah. I'm not certain, but I know they the other two. clearly get along. So once again, standard disclaimer, you don't have to watch any of this stuff. We watch it for you and serve it up in such steaming detail you'll walk away feeling like you've watched it. But until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.